Welcome to this episode of Clinically Pressed. We've got another full episode out. It's been a long time coming, but we're excited to have this one. Uh, If you have any questions or are looking into dietary supplements of any kind, there is very few places you could go to find two more dialed-in people onto that topic than this episode right here. Uh, This is fantastic. We're glad to have AJ back and getting this interview. Um, it is very long. We thought about breaking it down, but according to AJ, they may do a follow-up because they've got more to cover. So we may end up having a part two, but tons of good information here in a really confusing area of nutrition and health when it comes to dietary supplements. So please enjoy. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, today I'm here. I'm joined here with Dr. Chris Lockwood uh, to discuss dietary supplements. So I've been following uh, Dr. Lockwood's work for a while now, and he's kind of had his hands in a little bit of everything related to fitness, nutrition, supplements, uh, academic research, and such. So I think you probably have one of the most unique perspectives and in, in list of experiences when it comes to a lot of these different topics. And that was one of the reasons why. I wanted to, to talk to you today and, and kind of ask you a lot of these questions is because you've, you've really straddled the lines of business, industry, R&D, academic research, and, you know, kind of found ways to intertwine all those throughout your career. So again, I'm just really interested to hear your perspective on some of these things. And, and even with my, my career, I've focused a lot of my research on dietary supplements, but you know, to be honest, I really just know that side of the industry. I don't have nearly as much knowledge and expertise on the regulatory side of it, or even from a supplement manufacturer's perspective, you know, what are challenges that they face? What are things they do right? What are things they don't do right? Uh, And so those are some of the insights that I'm just hoping to get from you today. And again, just share with others who might also be interested in this. So before we get into a lot of those nitty gritty details, I don't know if you want to just kind of share a, a brief summary of of your work history. And I know it's a, a pretty extensive list, but just kind of hitting the highlights of some of the things that you've done and what's led you to to this point in your career today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, thanks for having me uh, too, Andrew. I mean, uh, love the work that you've been doing and your uh, papers that you're putting out have been wonderful. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here first and foremost. So uh, hopefully I can shed some light on some areas. I will admit that there's going to be a little bit of a, uh, uh, I might pull the veil back a little, uh, quite a bit on some things that people uh, might uh, have assumed. And then uh, hopefully in some other areas, um, you know, give a perspective that people hadn't thought of. And from a research perspective, things that researchers, I think, should really know uh, and be aware of. Uh, those people that are the consumers of the research as well need to be more aware of. Uh, as far as the background goes, I mean, yeah, it is a Heinz 57. Uh, if that, if that's even it, if we can use that as a as an analogy these days still, or whatever it would be called, a euphemism. But um, yeah, it started uh, 
with me thinking I could, you know, be a Dukes of Hazard stuntman and falling asleep at the wheel working for a winery uh, for E&J Gal, a winery out of undergrad business school, and then deciding, okay, I don't think I want to die selling Thunderbird and Night Train. And so I went back to get a, I got a master's degree in exercise science. I thought I'd be a strength coach and uh, met my now wife and uh, we've been married for coming up on 23 years and in Pensacola, Florida. So I was, uh, and I just, I liked to write back in those days. So I got hired by Muscle Fitness Magazine after I did my master's degree back in the fun days when people read magazines and Joe Weider and family owned the magazines. And then when you write about like how to get bigger biceps this month or next month or the month after that, it gets a little bit like Laverne and Shirley. And so I ended up on the nutrition side running American bodybuilding. Uh, if you're familiar with that drink brand and launch things like speed stack and, and like an ephedra gum. And we were doing some really cool stuff. And I will say like, you know, Weeder nutrition is not a, a brand that's relevant today uh, by any means, but back in that time, back when dinosaurs roamed, when I started in the industry, it was, um, so that was in 1999 when I shifted or December, 1999, when I shifted over to the nutrition side, I mean, they were the biggest game in town, uh, them twin lab and, and, and folks like that. And so learning in that regulatory side, there's a term I'm going to use called consent decrees. And so consent decree is like in, so in, a, if you're familiar with NCAA, you know, infractions in, uh, so I use, at, this is going to show my age as well. So Southern Methodist University, SMU was a powerhouse football program in the eighties until they got busted for uh, recruitment violations or whatever it was. And now we still haven't, you know, SMU has never recovered. Right. Well, it's the equivalent of that in the, in the, when the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, comes in and says that you are, you know, egregiously uh, misrepresenting your product, and it's called a consent decree. They, they tend to partner up with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And so Weeder was the first example of a company ever to get under a consent decree. Uh, after Deshay was written, after a Dietary Supplement Health Education Act was written. And so I started in that world. And so I've learned from, you know, what can you not say? Like, how do you say taste great, less filling and make it sellable to people who claim that they're curing cancer because they're flying so far under the radar? And so, yeah, I ran American Bodybuilding, got it to the point where we could flip the company, Optum Nutrition bought it, or now, you know, Glambia, who owns them. Uh, and then I went to GNC, somehow running a you know $27 million ephedra-based business, somehow qualified me to go into GNC and run the diet and energy food division, which is about $380 million, heavily in ephedra. And I was brought in to kind of help get us, you know, transition us out of ephedra. And, um, and they, they, they had really lost favor with sports nutrition for the ways that my you know, predecessors managed that area. And so after running ADB, so if you're not familiar with drinks, drinks are heavy, drinks have to be transported. So you gotta think like going to a, a grocery store or, or into a convenience store, going to a, that kind of environment, you know, you don't see them getting drop shipped, you know, drinks. It's a guy who shows up, you know, and uh, with a 
Coke or Pepsi or, you know, Miller or Budweiser truck and delivers drinks as they're heavy to ship around. So American bodybuilding, we had 42 dedicated distributors, which now are, you know, like Europa, which is like the biggest distributor, sports nutrition distributor, you know, in the U.S., was one of our distributors. I mean, Eric and Jeff, I go way back from when I was running gyms and, and, and know those guys, but, you know, those types of companies or, you know, the other smaller ones that were smaller than Europa became kind of got gobbled up by another, you know, big company now called Muscle Foods USA. And so at any rate, I knew most of these sports nutrition companies. And so I was at GNC when Royal Numico owned them and we, got out of a Fedrin, you know, and when the way we did that, we shifted into uh, Atkins. So we kind of put them on the map in a big way because low carb was the only thing I could think of that would transition us out of a Fedrin where I wouldn't lose my, you know, entire revenue stream from our area. So, and if you know anything about you're going to find with uh, sports nutrition, we are a fashion industry. They come back like bell bottoms every 10 years. The same things happen. So, you know, it was low carb then 10 years before there was also another low carb kick in the industry. And now 10 years later after that, here we are calling it keto, but it's all the same thing with a slightly different name, a little bit different color patterns. And you see this with the essential amino acid rise again, you know, we were doing that, you know, back in the nineties. And so it's, it's, it just keeps cycling. And so, but so after GNC, I went back, I, I uh, did some uh, consulting firm uh, with some, with some friends. And then I went back for my PhD. I just kind of saw the, what was going to happen in the industry um, uh, with higher, more regulation. And after, you know, after going from, the, the writing side at Muscle Fitness to then, you know, two companies that were under heavy consent decrees and just seeing the legal regulatory involve, uh, involvement and what I had to deal, you know, each time there was, okay, I want to go back for my PhD. And so in 2005, I started at Arizona thinking I was going to do medicinal chemistry from natural products. And then Jeff Stout uh, reached out and asked, about coming out there to OU when he was at University of Oklahoma. And so I ended up going to University of Oklahoma, finishing my PhD um, in exercise phys, and which is exactly what I needed. I wanted to do a research heavy PhD. Cause here's the thing is that like, I mean, at the companies I ran that were both investing heavily in research, I mean, leader nutrition back in the day, what a great learning experience for a young, ignorant punk like I was, you know, just, I had, you know, just, lots of energy to want to what why, why won't everybody else work 20 hours a day you know why don't you believe this stuff you know and, and you, you, you drove a lot of people crazy but i but they invested so well into research at the time um but but really kind of horrible research i mean this is example like you can spend a lot of wonderful money you can look at like so like john berardi you know was up at uh, Dr. Lehman, or not Lehman, uh, Peter Lemon's lab. Um, uh, Peter Lemon was one of the advisors for Weeder. And so, you know, uh, the dissertation work that, that um, 
that Berardi did, you know, was coming out of, uh, we were fun, co-funding that, uh, that work. And, and so they, they invested very well. Unfortunately, there was also a lot of studies that they invested in that from a brand perspective, I couldn't say anything, you know, and so learning how to integrate, you know, a brand marketing sales consumer story within a regulatory environment and mirroring it up with what science, what goes on in the, in the, in the labs and in university research. So when I went back for my PhD, I got to tell you, like that was a big learning experience to see on how I was over-marketing to people. I mean, I remember I use this example a lot is when I first start, when I was teaching nutrition, I'd give a little, you know, market survey, if you will, I wanted to see where people were starting. And so here, here it is, you know, it's 2007. Uh, and I've got my students, you know, filling out first day of class in, in nutrition, you know, a, you know, form on kind of some basic concepts and see where they're at like, you know, pick out something that's a high antioxidant or, you know, terms that we may take for granted. But I'll use this example because this is the one I always remember is that I asked the students, you know, pick the food highest in fiber. I can't remember what some of the other examples, you know, foods that I gave, but more than 70% of the time each semester, students picked roast beef. And when I would, and when I would, I know it's, it's so, and I, it is where you go, wow. And so when you probe, you're like, why did you pick? And they thought muscle fiber. And you say, well, no wonder the, the way people eat in this, society is so bad. They don't understand basic concepts. And we, and I was guilty of it. And I still, I always have to kind of remind myself, tone it down, tone it down. These, you know, uh, consumers, you know, bless their hearts. They just, they don't understand it. And the ones that even say like, oh, I do my research, they don't understand it. And, and then brands, you know, are run by those same people who are themselves often quite ignorant, you know? And so anyway, I went back for a PhD, a very research heavy one, uh, really grateful to Jeff and uh, you know, Dr. Stout and the rest of the group there and got to meet some amazing, I mean, you know, obviously I, I, people that follow the research, I still continue to do. I still collaborate a lot with uh, Dr. Mike Roberts. I mean, I'm blessed to have run into somebody who, I mean, I, I make this joke a lot. Like, there's people like me who have a PhD and I should have like maybe like a two star, like if you're going to do like military, like on a good day, I might have like, you know, uh, Mike Roberts and, and, and people in his caliber. I mean, they're a full five star general PhD that we should give those things out like that. Cause and I just really, really blessed to meet people like him, Abby Smith Ryan was, you know, in our, in our department and uh, Jordan Moon, who does a lot of body comp uh, work, was my, you know, office mate, you know, so we'd, I'd sleep on the decks and I'm sure that's probably not the greatest, but, um, but yeah, yeah that, I mean, it was- that, uh, lab is, that lab has definitely kicked out some great researchers <laughs> over the years. Yeah, and then me. And so, you know, yeah, I gotta have a village idiot in the group. And so, uh, but it was, um, so that's, I did that. and maybe people don't, uh, and I apologize for meandering, but uh, my last year in the program, 
got asked to come back and run the magazines. And so for a year, I flew back and forth between Oklahoma and LA running Muscle and Fitness and Muscle and Fitness HERS and collecting data and teaching class and taking classes. And uh, with my, we had a, a, our daughter at the time was uh, three, I think it uh, would have been at the time. So, um, so yeah, you know, um, did that. And then, you know, so, and then uh, after, after that second time, after graduating, I mean, so this is where, you know, maybe the wheels on the bus start falling off. I mean, but um, I've run, you know, been CSO of different companies, but after, after that point, you know, I ran, I really ended up going in and doing full-time consulting work and coming in and just being able to use the science side of what I do with the brand marketing and publishing side and being able to talk and make it in a, in that, in that world. Um, you know, I've had, uh, uh, there's been different companies. Uh, there's a company that, uh, international, uh, a company called for life that I came in as a CSO and, you know, helped grow that company and learned a lot there. Uh, and, you know, good and bad experiences everywhere you go. Um, but yeah, uh, a little bit of everything. Cyvation, if you're familiar with Extend and, mm-hmm. and that, I mean, so after Muscle Fitness, the second time that was a brand I was brought in as kind of an interim C- CEO and, and fixed it. And we can get into that. It makes for a good kind of story on some of the questions that I think you were going to ask. So yeah, there's, there's a, probably if there's a sports nutrition brand out there, I've probably worked with them, uh, at some, some point. Um, uh, that's, that's and as far as, as far as formulas go, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've consumed something that I've made or touched at some point. So. Yeah. And that's what even jumped out at me when I was looking through, you know, the resume and, and stuff that you had passed along. I was looking at the years there and you're a bit ahead of me. And when you were doing some of those things in the industry, I mean, that was right when I was starting to, to get really interested in, in supplements, kind of bodybuilding. I was reading a lot of those muscle magazines and stuff when I was, you know, middle school and high school. Um, and that's, again, what kind of set me off on that career path at the time, I just got sucked into it. And at the time, I wasn't really familiar with the field of exercise science, I didn't even know it existed. So I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist. And, and then later on, once I got into school, I was like, Oh, there's actually an entire career path I can go on, you know, that is exercise science, sport, nutrition stuff that I, I'm actually interested in. And so I made that pivot in undergrad, but I can't help think that you were probably contributing in some way to, you know, some of the stuff that I was gobbling up as a young, you know, teenager lifting and, and taking supplements and all that stuff back in the day. Oh, it's great. Well, huh? happy uh, to be a part of it. I mean, and I, I've given the same uh, statement to uh, Rick Kreider and, you know, Dr. Bill Kramer. I mean, I remember getting, when I finally had the opportunity to get to, you know, get to know them and work with them. I mean, it was such an honor because they were the same reason, you know, when I was reading theirs, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do, you know? And, and so, yeah, I mean, life is supposed to be like that, right? I mean, hopefully we pass on something, you know, to somebody else. And so, yep. so yeah. Yeah. And I still think one of the articles that has probably gotten the most views that I've ever done is something that I, I, 
I think I did it in women's health, you know, five or so years ago. So it's like you work so hard as a scientist to, to publish this stuff in peer reviewed journals and, you know, maybe a couple hundred people will read it, but then you put one in those magazines and thousands of, you know, millions of eyes are on it. And so it's just funny that the, the comments I got from that one article of women's health have always been far surpassing of any scientific article I've ever put out there. No, and it's, it's, it's great you say that. I mean, and that's, you know, uh, Jeff Stout once said he, he liked uh, that I could take science and make it, you know, where a, an eighth grader could read it. So when I you know, did some editing for him uh, before I, I did my PhD under him, I take that as a compliment. I mean, you know, Joe Weider, like him or dislike him, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, the magazines, you know, were, you know, there's, there's some really unfair critics, you know, that, uh, with the muscle and fiction. I mean, I'd go to, I'd go to trade shows and have to sit there in the front row as, with my press badge and hear the people talking and criticizing, you know, the magazine using that expression. And you're like, but you're talking to a consumer level, you know, you have to understand where it's not, we're not trying to appeal to peers in academia. You want to have that conversation, let's have that conversation. So when I got brought back that second time, you know, and I brought in a lot of, uh, I brought in a science advisory board and, you know, really to bring more credibility back into the magazine and, and change it, which was the direction I was asked to do by a, by not by Joe Weider the second time, but by a much, uh, I probably don't want to say too many mean things, but you know, I mean, so the name, anybody over the last four years has followed the name David Pecker from American Media, who acquired Muscle and Fit, uh, Fitness and, and all of the Weider publications. And I had to work for that, that man, which, you know, you pray for that guy every night because, uh, man, uh, not a not a likable gentleman, and so unless, any rate, that was, that's all I'll say. And so, but you know, putting that credibility into that magazine and getting people where they can read it and and want to then apply the science. I mean, so there's a it's a symbiotic world of you know what happens in the lab often reflects what's being done by the consumers already. You know, and so criticize it as you will. Joe Weeder used to like to say, "Goes ah." Oh, scientists are always about a decade behind what we're already doing. He called them the fellas. So the fellas are always 10 years ahead of what the scientists are doing. And Joe took a real liking to me. I think I was so ignorant and vain. That I would, uh, I was one of the few that didn't just, you know, kiss up to him. Uh, and when I ran American bodybuilding and the sports nutrition side, there was a real, uh, the, the nutrition side out in Utah was not fans of Joe. They they saw him as kind of the, because they, they put a lot of like Procter and Gamble type, you know, uh, people that were really professional people in charge of the nutrition side. And they saw him as this, you know, kind of crazy bodybuilding grandpa figure. And they just had to kind of deal with his name on the building um, and on their checks. Uh, but, you know, when I, I started using the bodybuilders and fitness people that we were paying good money for and using the scientists to part as part of the advertising and marketing. Uh, he just, he took a real liking to me and I was always really blessed by that. And so, uh, and I was given the opportunity to learn and make a lot of mistakes, but when the guy whose name's on the building and on your checks likes you and you're learning 
you can do a lot of dumb things uh, and not realize how ignorant you are. I mean, I look back, I still talked to, I was talking to a friend the other day and like, man, we didn't know how great we had it, you know, back at that time thinking, you know, chicken little that the sky was falling, um, you know, because we didn't have full on support uh, with, you know, the people around us, but you'll know, be grateful for what you got. It's one of the lessons I've learned from that experience, but but yeah, Joe, Joe was one of the reasons I decided you talked about that women's health magazine article being the biggest, you know, read is that when I was happy as a clam, I can still remember standing in the driveway at our little rental house there in Norman, Oklahoma. I'm doing my PhD. I've got one, uh, Jeff allowed me to have one client, you know, while I was, uh, in my PhD program, uh, Tim Patterson at Biotest, if you're familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. T Nation, love that guy. Um, he'd occasionally call on me to ask questions, you know, once every couple months, but uh, just, you know, really grateful for his support of me and my family during that period. And we're sitting there talking about how great, you know, life was. We got our little daughter in our little front yard playing. I get a call from Muscle Fitness wanting me to come back. They've, you know, they wanted, they had really lost a lot of credibility. They wanted somebody, my name kept popping up. And, and I knew, you know, it's like one of those things, you know, you're going into a train wreck, but the opportunity to talk and hopefully make a positive influence on, you know, the past. So if you know anything about publishing, publishing is not the newsstands, isn't where you do your money. Newsstands, you know, or excuse me, uh, subscriptions are not where you do money. People don't care about subscriptions. You give away subscriptions. Subscriptions are often printed on less appealing and thinner paper and save money. You give away subscriptions to tell your advertisers that you have a high circulation, then you charge a higher premium. So these are the types of things you kind of learn. Well, 9-11 just destroyed, you know, publishing the publishing industry because you don't really realize how many magazines sold when people waited for loved ones at the airport but so i'm going to throw out a number so we had about a, our pass-through rate so our total readership on an issue somewhere you know domestically was like 7.4 million readers and you go as an idealist uh that i am i think in my core is that you know man i can have the opportunity to talk to and hopefully make a positive impact on that many people. When you realize that muscle fitness back in those days, a large part of our readership I mean, was kids, you know, uh, and military and uh, uh, people in, in prison, okay? It was a, was a big consumer base. You say, man, those are, those are men that I could hopefully make a positive impact on, not only as a, in, in their fitness and in their life, where they can have some sense of control and be a better person, but as a father and as, as a neighbor, as a friend. And so I looked at that as a, in an idealistic realm. And so, yeah, the, the articles that I write for, you know, for magazines that do have higher readership, you get far more engagement. There's not one study I've done that you get that kind of engagement. And so, yeah. And what's the point, right? I mean, you're at a public university where tax dollars is what, allows you to have that kind of great facility and even if it's a grant-based study if those grants the indirect cost the university you know the the state funding for grants i mean they, a lot of people forget that like those tax incentives 
come back. So all of it, if it can't be something that's applicable and usable to the consumer who's paying for it in the first place, in one way, shape, or uh, one way, shape, or form, directly or indirectly, then what's the point? And so I'm a practical. When it comes to doing studies, I'm very practical because it's like, that's great. I'm glad you want to go as a dietary supplement, and this will be a good segue into regulatory. You want to go decide if if this thing can cure cancer. Wonderful, good for you. This supplement company isn't going to pay for it because they can't make a claim on it. And to convince, and this is always hard for people that come from academia and they go back into, or they finish their PhD and they want to run a company and, and then the ego pops in is they want to appeal to their, who they see as their colleagues, which are still in academia. And like, you can appeal to your colleagues in academia over here, but your colleagues are your consumers who depend on you. And then you've got this regulatory body, the FDA and FTC, who says very clearly what you can and cannot say. And if you are at a company to sit there and hopefully when you walk through the door, you don't walk through those doors at the place you're going in saying, ah, what can this company do for my pocketbook today? You go into that company saying, what can I do for this company, right? I mean, I'm very, I'm very much a J, John F. Kennedy type fan in that, like, what can I do today for the company that's hired me? And, you know, these, a lot of times these people with PhDs will go into a company and they'll want to appeal to, or feel embarrassed that they aren't doing, you know, life-saving research. Well, you, that's great, but you can't, you can't market it. You can't, legally, you cannot talk about curing cancer, curing diseases, you know, uh, preventing diseases. <laughs> you can't, you can't say the word, you know, anti-inflammatory without getting, you know, a 483 or, a, or an FDA warning letter. And so the faster people can understand that, like, and so that, which is a good segue into also how can you identify a brand that doesn't know anything about regulatory. And if they are making like these very obvious mistakes in what they're saying or what isn't on their label, then you can guarantee 100% of the time, this is not, uh, is not even doing, going in and auditing or being called in for companies 100, 100% of the time. If they don't know these basic regulatory requirements and they're flagrantly in violation of those, then you can guarantee that, that the quality control and the product and ingredient specifications and the verification that they're supposed to be doing, the analytical testing on every raw material and the analytical testing in process while things are being built and the analytical testing pre-release to consumer out into distribution. You can guarantee they're not doing it to the level that they're marketing that they are. Uh, so ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways, right? And and So why do you think there's so many companies that, that still do that? Do they just is it too many for the FDA and FTC to, to really kind of keep tabs on at all times? Is there just too many companies that grow too quickly and they are allowed to kind of fly under the radar or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So you, uh, uh, so you nailed one major area is that the FDA does not have the resources you have to remember. So when Deshay was written, you know, Deshay is never the dietary supplement health education act, uh, co-sponsored by Orrin Hatch, and, uh, and, and now, uh, so bo both actually uh, are, are retired. Harkin out of Iowa was the other. 
you know, um, co-sponsor of that bill that got a lot of criticism and still does. Like uh, Deshay removed the FDA's ability to regulate supplements. That's not true. You're gonna. It looks like looking at your background. Are you are you at work? You're at your lab right now. Yep. Okay. So when you get done uh, today and get in your car, you're gonna. I assume you drove uh, and you're gonna drive home, right? You know what the rules are. You had to go take a driver's exam to get your your driver's license. You know that you know you should be wearing a seatbelt, turn signal at so many feet prior to coming to a turn. You know that the white line. You know what a stop sign means. You know what the white solid line versus the 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 dash line. But it's up to you to follow those rules. Right. I mean, and so there is a lot of regulations in place. The Shea gave a lot of protections to consumers and it gave a lot of requirements to industry. Uh, the GMPs that are in place under 21 CFR 111, which is under the food regs. The, so the food that you buy, your conventional foods are 21 CFR 110. Now both foods and dietary supplements also have an additional for the raw material side. It's kind of a, it was a, 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 an area that kind of had a little bit of a workaround in the GMPs is now 21 CFR 117, which kind of closes those loopholes, but there's regulations that companies are to follow. Um, and there's a whole series of other ones that you have to be aware of, but those are the big ones that companies need to know. Um, and unfortunately, Deshay has never been fully funded. FDA has never had the manpower to enforce. And so what does the FDA do? And this is what you as a taxpayer. And so, you know, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I definitely side more libertarian. And so uh, I will say, like, how much do you want the FDA to be involved? And that the FDA has to do is they say, well, we're here to protect safety, right? CBD is a great example. CBD is illegal. It's illegal and you can have this, you know, you can, you see it in your gas station. Maybe you're buying a product from somebody who's selling it, but you should really, it should raise a radar in your, you know, a big question mark over your head to say, I wonder why, like a big company, like, why is Nutribolt not sell that? Like C4 people to sell you court. Why don't they have a C, why don't they have a CBD product? Why doesn't Jaro formulas, why don't they have one? Why doesn't now foods have a CBD? And you need to start asking yourself, like, why is it that the big companies don't? Well, it's a big target. You know, you're a big bullseye uh, when, you, uh, when you're the big company. It's illegal. FDA has said it. The DEA has said it. The state of California's version of the FDA, they've said it, is that there is no, there is nothing that's legal about CBD being used in a dietary supplement. But here's where the FDA, their position is, there's so many people breaking the law but there's nobody dying, right? So it hasn't become a, a safety concern. So if you are limited resources, and so you gotta use this, like if you're in your house and you suddenly, you know, you're suddenly, your house turns into Tom Thumb where you've got leaks coming everywhere. You know, you're gonna be patching those as fast as you can, right? There's a point where you're gonna see little tiny ones that you know, like, okay, well, that's not gonna do any major damage but I need to take care of these big issues first. And FDA, that's their role. They say, well, what's, what's our biggest concern for safety? And until there's a problem, 
they're not going to sit there and put down a hammer and say, as of today, this changes. A uh, good example of that, if you follow it, was uh, Kratom, right? So you've got uh, Kratom was, had been out in the dietary supplements as this kind of, you know, gray area ingredient for a long time um, and should, should be legal in the sense of the, the use of it. Uh, but FDA didn't, you know, FDA didn't, uh, didn't, didn't make a deal out of it until they had some batches that came in that were, uh, I think it was salmonella that was, uh, that was present uh, in batches. And so there was only a few companies that were selling Kratom, you know, at the time, you know, I shouldn't say a few, but not a lot of the industry that was selling it or even aware of it and its use. But a lot of people got sick. So very CDC-like, you know, the centers, centers of Disease Control had to get involved because they saw, you know, people getting sick with salmonella. And when they traced it back, it was from some bad batches of raw material that came in from China uh, that ended up in consumer products. And at that point, FDA says, hey, this is, uh, this is not legal. Uh, it's an illegal ingredient. Um, we're now going to take action and we're going to make it a a big issue. And if you're selling this, you know, then clearly you haven't been using the safeguards to make sure that even though you have already been breaking the law, technically, regulatory, then now we're going to make it very clear that this is absolutely illegal. Anybody selling this, it's, there's a whole new level of prosecution. And so CBD is in the same realm. I mean, you want to see CBD go away tomorrow? Uh, easy. It is the raw materials that get tainted. And if there's brands, the, what FDA is doing is they're going after brands that are so ignorant that they're making disease claims, right? I mean, they're selling things that are topical CBD and making uh, structure function claims. That's illegal if you're not familiar with that. Uh, you can't, topical can only make the skin appear more pretty, uh, brighter, more, you know, look more uh, moist. Um, you have to consume it. You can't be a sublingual, you know, where you say under your tongue, that's illegal. And so companies that sell sublinguals, they like, and make structure function claims should be a big red flag. Like this company is breaking the law. You know, I mean, uh, Companies are doing spray on fat burners, you know, and calling it, you know, which you, you've probably got the same ones that pop up, you know, on your social media pages, the same idiots that I, I'm the guy who will send them a message going, you know, you're breaking the law and they, you know, always my stuff gets blocked, you know, and deleted, but, um, but, you know, it's, uh, it's those types of things that you see that, that happen. Now here, I'll say this is that there's a lot of people in our industry that say, FDA just is in the, you know, back pocket of, of, of drug companies, you know, and they just don't want us to have this and we could cure cancers and, you know, I'm not here to debate that. Uh, I'm a big fan that, you know, God put uh, a lot of amazing plants and things on this planet for us to find, discover and use for health. And so I believe in food as medicine. Uh, and so and medicine is food. And so I believe in that wholeheartedly and exercise, but the rules are the rules. And so if you want to play in the space, you got to play by the rules and you can sit there and be, and we just saw this happen, you know, this past year where, you know, the guys at high tech pharmaceuticals, they can sit there and fight the FDA all they want on, you know, DMAA 
and continue to violate it flagrantly because they were rolling in money. And the people that were selling that, knowing that it was illegal and making money as long as they could, you know, now they're paying the piper. And you're like, you can sit there and push it. But the reality is, is these are the laws. And if you want us to be symbiotic at all, where we're not just constantly fighting, then just play by the rules. You know, like there's a really good reason, you know, why, you know, I'm not shooting up, you know, uh, steroids at super physiological amounts, uh, going to a guy at the corner to get it because it's illegal. Do I think that we can have a great conversation on that it shouldn't be that, you know, from a safety standpoint and health benefits and how that's, you know, I mean, I wrote an article back when I was uh, with uh, Rick Collins, who you're probably familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, called, you know, called Estrogen Nation as a, a little pat on the back from Tim Patterson, who was paying, you know, uh, paying for my dissertation at the time. So uh, wrote Estrogen Nation. It was just back in 2009 on this kind of the hypocrisy in our country's stance on things that promote estrogen. But if God forbid it promotes testosterone, it's evil, right? And so have wonderful artists draw this amazing cool <laughs> logo you know satan holding a stake with a t on it anyway uh but um yeah it was this uh uh i mean so and my point is is that there is illegal and you got to work through it and so from the dietary supplement industry you ask what's why is it so prevalent uh very lucrative a lot of people can make a lot of money uh in it i mean we were talking about as you as a consumer you know, the raw material ingredient, and this is not, this is not unique to dietary supplements. It's common in a lot of other um, uh, industries. And so, but when you do the pricing from what does it cost, you know, what's the margin, what's the profit that a raw material company makes, the contract manufacturer, the brand, if they sell through a distributor, what is Amazon, you know, or a traditional DSD distributor, the retailer to you, the markups just keep coming, right? There's a lot of people who can uh, basically double whatever they buy it for and turn around and sell it, right? I mean, that's a, a pretty common number to throw out. Um, not fair. It's definitely promotions, knock those down. But if you just kind of do the numbers backwards on a single ingredient product that in a worst case scenario, it's 50, 50, 50, 50, you know, every time you double your money. And so there's just, it's a very lucrative industry. Um, you know, you can, if you're doing the law, you know, if you're, if you're able to do it well, you can get out there, make a bunch of statements, fly under the radar, flip your company and get out and probably wipe your brow and go, man, I got out before the FDA and everybody found out I wasn't following any of the laws, you know, and sell your company for millions happens all the time, all the time, which is disgusting. Uh, but I mean, had that conversation yesterday about another, you know, company that somebody, yeah, you know, he sold his company and now he's, he goes around, he does lectures and helps people with theirs. And I'm looking back, like the brand was a train wreck. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway, but yeah, just not enough, not enough manpower Yeah, and, that's and ignorance. I, I will, I will say this, like, I mean, that's the one thing is that, you know, FDA, Here's, I've, I've argued for this in the industry is that 
So my wife's a physical therapist. You said you wanted to be one, and I use use her industry as an example often. Or law. I mean, is probably people are probably more familiar with as lawyers. Is that you go get a degree? You can, my wife becomes a PT, or you know, Rick Collins, you know, is, a, is an attorney. Um, you know, you got to take your bar. Okay, so you have to qualify for and and get your get your license, right? But then you have to apply in whatever state that you're going to to perform that that duty in a responsible manner, right? And so my wife, sad for her, is as much as I have moved with going and working with different companies. I mean, you know, she's got, she should just have like a, she should ask if there's a bone, if there's some kind of like package discount to just buy one for every state in the country. <laughs> but, but she has to apply for each of these. And God forbid, if she did anything egregious uh, and negligent that hurt somebody, she would get her license taken away, right? And she'd have to reapply for another, in another state if we moved. And they might, that board might decide you have violated the law uh, too egregiously. Uh, you don't get a license here, you know, or you'll be under some period of, you know, where I don't know, uh, the word's not coming to me, but where you have kind of a, a grace period of, uh, of before they give you, give you the rights. Well, our industry doesn't have that. I mean, so anybody and you know, food companies are the same. And I want to make sure, and I'll say this uh, now, is that if you think the food you consume is any safer than the dietary supplements that you consume, well, you can, then, then I've got some, you know, I got some oceanfront property in Arizona that I'm going to sell you because you're, you're ignorant, is that food companies, dietary supplement companies, especially as people are buying more small, these you know, local, this is all full organic, and this is my high protein pancake mix. And is they are, most of them are built around the, in the same manufacturing facilities. They're using easily 70, 80% of the same raw material suppliers. And so they just put a nutrition facts versus a supplement facts on the panel. Doesn't make them any more, any better at the quality control. So just be aware of that. But my point going back to the the licensure thing is that in our industry, in the dietary supplement industry, is that you can egregiously violate the law. You can be sued. You can have your company sued. You can have FDA warning letters. Our industry is going to welcome you back if, as long as you're paying, as long as you're bringing foot feet into the door to buy a product. I mean, and it's the real sad reality is that. Now, part of me says, hey, people can change. And, you know, Joe Weider did make big mistakes. His consent decree was because he was saying that heavy weight gainer, you know, 5,000 or, you know, whatever it was, whatever product at the time, you know, worked as good as steroids. And they made an example of him. Like, you know, car, you know sugar and, and milk protein isolate at the time and fat does not work as good as steroids. He had a lifetime consent decree. And then he... And let me tell you, weeder nutrition in the day still leaps and bounds, you know, generations ahead of where so many companies still are not even close to today. And so it's a great example of learning your lesson and becoming a leader in the area. And there's a lot of companies that I can point to that have, have done exactly that, that got hit and then, you know, or found out on how poorly they were in quality like Cybation when I came in and really then became a leader in that space 
and hopefully you pull some other people and educate other people up. But for everyone that you're educating up, you know, there's just, I think there's, I don't know, there's 56,000 different brands, you know, or something. it's just some ridiculous, and it's just, how do you make heads or tails of it? People ask me all the time is like, how do I know which is a good one or a bad one? And, you know, there's certain, like I said earlier, there's some telltale signs that at least should raise flags. There's some questions you can reach out to the company and ask. But the reality is, is you and I aren't going to sit there and pay to have independent testing done on their products to see. And the reason why so many, why it's so easy is that companies, all they need to be able to do to get in business is be able to pay for a first production run. They don't even need to know how to manu- how to formulate a product. They just go to a contract manufacturer uh, who, who guaranteed contract manufacturer will have some kind of like white label, you know, formulas that they could do and slap your name on it and your, uh, you know, your, your company's name on it and, and make it seem as though it's yours. And that happens eight out of 10 products that you're probably buying is not actually the brand that claims that they're formulating it. They're, that, that company is just full of marketing people who are great at marketing and making you think that they're smart. And some of those people, the sad part is that a lot of those people who claim to be, you know, the geniuses behind the brands are the most ignorant people you'll meet. And so as a yeah, that's, uh, that's terrifying to think about. And, and so, and I don't, and I don't mean ignorant in the sense of to be mean. I mean it that they don't understand what is supposed to go into it. And there's a, so there's a very good reason why people who come from pharma into, into a dietary supplement company, literally, you know, you have to probably vomit into their hand multiple times during the day when they see, you know, on the level of non-complexity that some people are willing to, to formulate around. I mean, like you bring up, I mean, it's a, so, you know, I get, it's not a, there's not a, there's at least definitely not a week that goes by. I don't have, you know, several people who will reach out and want me to come and, you know, do something with their company. And I always ask, like, I throw out, I throw out certain words and, you know, those CFR numbers and things like that and ask them. And when, when they're like, Oh, well, I don't What are you talking? What's a section six? I mean, it's, it's those types of things you go. Yeah. I mean, unless you're willing to pay some, like, I can't, like I, I've gone down that path so many times with companies that the cost just exponentially went up because of all the other stuff that's got to be going on at your place. That is so bad. And so, um, but yeah, good to, you know, it's, I don't mean to make it sound gloom and doom. There is a little bit of the wild west still out there, but it's the same in foods. And if you think the only foods that I'm going to suggest that you, it's not wild west are the ones that are in the perimeter of your grocery store. And that's your fresh fruits and produce. You know what that is. Now, as soon as you're putting things in powder and putting, you know, you know, claiming it's something else, man, I'm just here to tell you that you're going to be horribly disappointed on how little quality control some people put into their products. So, yeah. And, and so I'm, that kind of brings me back to even one of my first questions of, and I get asked this a lot of, you know, is the dietary supplement industry regulated? And it's like, well, yes, but, and then I usually kind of followed up with all these shortcomings and gaps and, you know, some of the, the issues that, 
that you've already addressed. And so I'm curious how, how you tend to answer that question as well when you get that. Yeah, uh, so it is regulated, 100% regulated. Uh, it's definitely, there's regulations and I do this presentation for folks and it's definitely, there's more regulations that dietary supplements have to do than foods. And just so you also understand is that, so, you know, FDA, Food and Drug Administration, you know, they oversee drugs and, you know, medical devices, you know, in one batch, uh, one area of, of what they oversee. There's uh, cosmetics, which is, a, is another kind of bucket. And there's other things I won't get into, but I'll, I'll keep it into the kind of the bigger buckets that we talked about. And then there's foods. And under foods, you have some different categories. Uh, so under food, your conventional food and beverages that have nutrition facts panels on it, on the back, that's always your easy way to say, is this a food or a supplement? Well, if it's a food, it's gonna say nutrition facts on the back panel. If it's a supplement, it's going to say supplement facts. That's rule number one. If it's a dietary supplement on the front of the panel, on the front label, it has to say the words in all in all caps, dietary supplement. Okay, it's uh, or it's it can say energy supplement. Uh, so, it, but it has to make you aware that this is a supplement. It's not under foods. There's also like infant formula is under the foods regs, right? And we think most people go. Infant formula, now that's gotta be high regs, right? Well, infant formula is no different than a subset of, of what the dietary supplement industry is. Foods, infant formula, dietary supplements, medical foods, ironically enough, uh, the, the pet supplements that you give to your dog under dietary supplements, all the same, right? Now here's where the yeah, so, so foods and the reason why we see, you know, nobody freaks out, like I often show this, you know, because um, there's some people who are very critical and, and ignorant to the laws that they claim to be experts on that they've gotten a lot of money into their companies and they're in well positioned places to influence people. And they are so ignorant to what they don't know as well. And they're wonderful, brilliant scientists. And so I go to these things and talk to them and I hear people like them say, dietary supplement, this is an actual quote in front of, you know, a bunch of uh, Department of Defense and FDA people and, that were there. And, and this person who makes a lot, of, a lot of money in this area and has a big staff and has a lot of influence she goes on to say dietary supplements should have no microbiologicals present in it, no heavy metals present in them, no banned substances present. And those all sound wonderful. And especially as all the RDs, registered dietitians clap and yeah, yeah. And you go, man, where, I, I gotta go. I got my unicorn is uh, parked at front and, and I can't, it's got to get home to the Pegasus land. I mean, this is such ridiculous insanity. It's not reality. Is that microbiologicals are in everything. So, uh, you know, you cannot get away from having certain levels of bacteria present in food. And there's not, there's safe levels. And then people need to understand what's a safe level and a manageable level all the way through, uh, expiration date like how do you keep that into a safe level the heavy metals you have them in your own body i mean let's face it arsenic is used 
in small amounts uh, for can you know they're exploring it for cancer research and our bodies have heavy metals in them so no big surprise that heavy metals will be present in the foods can you obviously have a safe level that we need to make sure that cumulatively over the course of a day that you keep those low and you should formulate based on that absolutely i mean absolute agreement but to say that they should have none well you're just in fantasy ignorant land you know and especially as a scientist who in the role this person is in 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 helping uh you know with policy um and then you know to say no banned substances well i like to always show uh, my little reveal those types of people will stand up and they'll show the, you know, the little spreadsheet of, you know, these products that they pulled offline, often many of them with nothing but like Korean writing. They're not even U.S. dietary supplements. They just could get it, you know, by ordering. Doesn't matter. Or their sprays. Doesn't matter that they're not technically dietary supplements already. That they'll show that they contain this testosterone or they contain, you know, this banned substance, you know, some kind of you know, amphetamine, whatever. Well, I do the same thing with mine and I show the amounts of testosterone and the amounts of adrenergic agonists, you know, that are illegal and, uh, you know, the tyrant, you know, the, that are, that are, that are in the, the WADA's most recent banned substance list. And, and you can show these IGF ones and different growth factors. And then my reveal is to show you know, you get these adrenergic agonists from the cuties that you give your kids, right? I mean, so citrus is high in adrenergic agonists. And so uh, there are several of the same banned substances in Wada Sport also are present in citrus fruits and milk and beef and eggs and things that come from animals will have trace amounts of, of anabolic steroids that are present, right? Androgenic anabolic steroids that are present. And you can't get around that. And so my point with scientists is always to say, just like with the, 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 the metals is we need to, if we're going to be taken seriously from somebody like me who does the testing and does the research and writes about it and understands the regs, then the conversation we need to have and communicate out, and as a science community, definitely, is that presence doesn't automatically mean adulteration. Presence just means, hey, we're, it's a natural product. And so it shouldn't surprise you that you're using citrus bioflavonoids and it's coming from a citrus plant. And therefore, you have certain adrenergic agonists that are banned in sport. Not, it's not surprising. In trace amounts, does that mean that we point our fingers at that company and say, ah, yeah, you're, you're spiking it. You're, no. I mean, we have to look at what amount? I mean, when it goes beyond, you know, what should be realistic, it's just like the protein spiking that came up several years ago, right? Is that if people had been doing the type of testing I was doing and actually looking at all the amino acid profile and comparing that to like what is expected and looking for things. And so, you know, you can run HPLCs on all of your amino acids and other types of, you know, mass spec testing to see like, is this actually compare to the profile you'd expect from whey protein. And when it didn't, you're like, okay, because the Dumas test and the Kildall tests that people do for just blanket nitrogen. Um, and so I apologize if I'm throwing test names out there that you're not familiar with, but 
Like that's what people do for food, for food nitrogen, for you name it. It's why in China, baby food, you know, was one of the first ones that got, you know, hit, you know, this goes back two decades, you know, when they were spiking their uh, baby formulas with melamine, the same thing you use in your cabinets, right? Which shows up because it's a, it'll show up like a nitrogen. And when you do a Kieldahl test or a Dumas test for basic nitrogen, and so the joke I tell people, or you know, I tell people is I could I could piss in your protein powder, and that's going to show up as nitrogen too. It doesn't mean it's something you want to be consuming, but if all you're doing is killed all tests and you're doing Dumas tests, then wonderful, you're going to pass, and you're going to say you got tons of protein in that product. And so it wasn't until, you know, the protein spiking, I can't remember, you know, who kind of brought that, you know, to the forefront to hit ding some people as most things happen, it comes through class action lawsuits. Yeah. Um, you know, industry is regulated, you know, to get back to answer your first question, is it regulated? Absolutely. And I often say it's regulated in three, by three areas. It's got the FBA, it's got the FTC, which uh, any claims and things you put on, they work very hand in hand. And then you've got class action litigators. I mean, that are very active in the dietary supplement space because, and here's where dietary supplements don't get a, a fair rap is that we have created in our, in our culture because of pharma is you can go screw your life up, eat whatever you want, don't exercise. There'll be a pill to cure that. There'll be a shot to cure that. There's a doctor's, you know, whatever prescription to cure that. And we have this kind of, I can wait to the last minute and fix it mentality. Well, supplements play off of that too, right? I mean, we're all narcissists at the end of the day. We want to look better, feel better, perform better. And dietary supplements tell you, I can make you look better, feel better, perform better, you know, because those are structure function claims. And so there's an expectation that's, that rises. And when that's not met, how many people you, know, you teach kids and they fail and they, you haven't seen that student in your class all semester. And when they do show up, they're not paying attention. They're on their phone. They're doing it. And then they fail their tests. How many of those students come to you and say, you know, I should have actually, you should have given me a lower grade. Like I, I, I didn't put enough effort into it. It's never their fault. Right. And they always want you to bend and tell it because it's, it's always your fault. Test was too hard. Questions were bad. You know, you're a bad teacher, whatever it is. Well, dietary supplements are the same. Well, I didn't lose weight, not my fault. I'm still eating ho-hos and doing whatever. I'm not exercising. I'm, I'm eating more calories than I burn. This product said I could, I could lose weight and I didn't. So it's your fault. And so I do think we increase expectations. The same reason why my wife's not happy. I tell her, yeah, you had high expectations for me. You should have lowered the bar. So, <laughs> but. So how would you, I, I don't know how much experience you have with the regulations in the pharmaceutical world, but how would you compare those two entities and the regulations that are in place for, you know, pharmaceutical drug manufacturing and getting those to market versus dietary supplements in terms of more so on the front end of that, when they have to, you know, do clinical trial works and have that safety and efficacy data ahead of time. How do those two differentiate? Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference. You have to remember that dietary supplements. I mean, so yes, so a, a drug. So if you go back in the history of you know the evolution of the you know it wasn't got to go back to the 18 late 1800s, 1870s, and you're still if you you ever see the movie uh, Million Ways to Die in the West, uh, <laughs> stuff, 
Seth McFarlane, right? I mean, the yeah, whole, yeah. you know, the joke about the guy selling, you know, red flannel, you know, pieces of red flannel, pieces of flannel, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, that, that snake oil salesman is, right? I mean, that's, that was the pharmacist of the day. I mean, and you have to remember that pharmacy in the late 1870s, because of horrible incident that, you know, where people, uh, you know, died and many of them children, you know, because of the lack of regulation at the time and oversight, the law was passed and that, you know, suddenly there was regulation it happened in 1880 something I can, I wasn't prepared to have this conversation. So I don't remember the, the actual dates and the bills anymore. That's why I put them in PowerPoints. Um, and then, you know, then there was a, another move in the early 19. I think it was like 1907, maybe, or 1903, another bill that was passed, um, and it segregated a little more, but it wasn't until, I think, like the Hoover administration that there was, you know, that they had to show uh, safety and efficacy. Uh, and so in the, in the realm of pharma, we often think, oh, you know, they have to, they've been doing this, but I mean, literally, it's, this is, this is post-World War II era is when they, when that started, this has not been something that is, in, that is entirely new or entirely old, I should say. I think that the dietary supplement industry is gonna continue to kind of go down a similar path, I mean, by default. Uh, and so to, to compare it, uh, pharmaceutical companies, yes, they have to do safety efficacy research in advance, have, to go in front of a panel with their data because it's a novel new drug. In theory, and this is gonna might be a little difficult to, to grasp, and in theory, dietary supplements have to do the same thing if it's a novel new ingredient that they're using. Okay, so so to be a dietary supplement, to be a dietary supplement and follow the law, okay. So let's just make sure I put it that way is that you can only use ingredients that are either, that are already in the approved list for, as food additives. So they have grass, generally recognized as safe. Uh, and under that, under the food regs of what is deemed allowed as a food additive. And so you can only pick from those. Now there is, there are dietary supplements that when Deshay was written that were deemed part of this grandfather clause is that they, if they were being sold at the time, and safety, then they automatically kind of got added into this. And there's, you know, kind of an archaic list. And, and the industry has been very, I think the better players in the industry, and I need to qualify that because there's, you know, the, one out of a hundred of the player, the companies in the industry don't invest in any decent uh, trade association. They're, they don't put their neck for it. They aren't people like me who go and talk and be the face of somebody who gets hammered, you know, as the, you know, the voice for the industry. And then they hide in the dark shadows doing every God knows what, right? And so if you're following the law, then you can only use ingredients that are approved for use. You step outside of that, well, that's, that requires you to use, a, you have to go through the new dietary ingredient laws. Well, that requires that uh, prior to coming to market, you have to present your safety and efficacy data to the FDA for approval. Um, and if you don't do that, 
then you are mismarketing an a and it you know it's a it's deemed as a as a as an ingredient that's that's in violation of that law an experimental new drug essentially and so now there the the part that is a little difficult is that the FDA because they've always been undermanned and viché is that there was a period that the industry was very proactive in submitting the better players that submitted N, uh, NDI applications and they had nobody to review them, okay? Because they had not funded the panel to review it, a, re, a review board. But they had one, you know, the joke is, and I don't know actually what it was like, but the joke has always been, I think that they had one secretary who would receive it, stamp, reject, and send it back to you. And now you've put your company on the radar, you know, never got reviewed, you were rejected. Uh, and so if you sold it, you were blatantly violating the law, right? And so companies stopped submitting. And so they said, why am I going to, why am I going to submit if you're not going to, this isn't even real. This is, this is a joke. And so companies stopped. And until it gets to the point where the FDA has a definitive process, which they are getting better at. And so there are companies that are back to doing this and, and are submitting NDIs again, and it's getting better. But if everybody did it, and especially if they went kind of the way of like Health Canada, when, when Health Canada came into play and just all of a sudden on one day made it a requirement, like you had, to, like if you had a new formula, any new formula, because it's a unique mix of ingredients, that's deemed a new dietary ingredient. Well, I mean, the FDA would fold, right? They'd have, they wouldn't have enough manpower to man it. And there'd be a total shutdown, especially if they, if they chose to quarantine everything that didn't have an approval. I mean, there'd only be a few products that are allowed to sell at that point. Most people would make bank. That's what happened with Health, Health Canada. There were companies that went out of business like overnight because you can't put product back on shelf and refill shelf that retailer is going to figure out something else to put on that shelf right and only the people that had gone through that early process did well and so anyway uh it is it's not horribly unlike pharma if you are following the law and if the fda has the manpower and is adequately reviewing your information so again it goes back to in theory the laws are there, the regs are there to protect you as a consumer and to make things the way we idealize them that they should be. The reality and is of what's going on is totally different. And the history- Do you have, do you have any idea on you know the percentages of, of companies that for the most part stay within the lines of the law? You, know, you mentioned 50,000 plus brands. If you were to ballpark it, you know, what, what percent are are abiding by all those regulations and, and pre-market, you know, laws, well, things that are in place. I don't know if that answer is even possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, I keep tabs on all the times I get called and asked to do work with companies. And I'll just give you my N of one, okay? So my, of all the companies that have called me over the years, and so all the full GMPs went into play. So as of 2010 is when every company big or small has to follow the laws. Now there is a small entity element to help kind of for new brands, but I mean, your threshold is 
one of the thresholds is you're selling less than $50,000 annually. I mean, so at that point, like you're literally selling to some friends, you know, in your local neighborhood. So, but beyond that, as of 2010, everybody's supposed to follow the law. Since that time, I mean, I tell people all the time, more than nine times out of 10, the companies that reach out to me don't pass the basic test on knowing what, knowing what 21 CFR 117 is. How does FISMA affect your business? Like, are you guys prepared for that? Do you have SOPs in place for your adverse, your SAERs, your serious adverse event reporting? You know, what are you talking, what is that? I mean, more than nine times out of 10 in sports nutrition. And that's a scary truth, but I would guarantee you if I had more nutrition and more food companies that reached out to me, I'd see the same thing mm -hmm. because especially now where you're seeing more small, you know, local type companies that pop up and are filling line space at powder manufacturers. I mean, it's just because people are wanting to buy. And I, I have my, again, the libertarian side of me, I'm a big fan of, you know, give people the option of creating these, these businesses and but do it safe and do it under under the regs have some intelligence there's just a lot of ignorant people going out doing uh doing um work that they are not qualified to do you wouldn't have there's a reason why you have to be a licensed electrician to come in and wire up a house there's a reason why you need a licensed professional to come you know run propane lines you know to your house so you don't blow up your neighborhood right well but any hack job who happens to look the look or talk the talk or comes from academia and thinks they know supplements suddenly is, is, is a formulator. And you're like, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And, and it's, it's a problem. And there's another, I mean, I, you know, I'm a segue, I'll jump over to, so a manuscript uh, I'm starting to work on is on the, on how much research is real. Right. So do you, uh, so I study in under Jeff Stout uh, and in that lab was uh, Dr. Joel Kramer. Are you familiar with? And so yeah. Joel's big into stats. I mean, and so I, if it wasn't for SPSS, I, I would be, you know, and Excel's, you know, stats spreadsheets. I'm, 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 I'm a moron, but I will say that, you know, their uh, emphasis on test retest reliability, interclass correlation, you know, on is your, lab and are the tests you're doing on your equipment and the methods you're doing are those real right i mean the the uh, as the air from the equipment versus the air that's added in by your methods and your staff you know training what i mean where is that air coming from where's the variance well as you know i mean in your lab i assume that you know you've done your iccs for every tests that you use so that you can report those. And as you have, you probably have standard operating procedures following like good laboratory practices, GLPs, so that as you have new students come in, they're trained effectively and retrained on those methods that you use repeatedly in your lab so that your error stays low. Um, ironically enough, uh, so I, I, as I was going through study after study after study, looking for how many studies report that they independently through a third party, not that the company that supplied you the product, but that you personally as the lab sent out for third party analytical testing of that product that you are claiming and making claims against. 
to verify it is what it is and it isn't what it shouldn't be. And again, the numbers are as bad as industry players that I deal with. More than nine times out of 10, nobody's validating this stuff. Amazing researchers who are taking product at face value. There's, uh, so unfortunately at you know, UMHB, you know, uh, Lem and them, uh, Dr. Taylor and them have had to see uh, the grant that I brought in of why I, I, why I require this is that, uh, and I started doing this with you know, Mike Roberts and when I work with him is that I send it out everything for third party validation because mistakes happen and products oxidize. And now in this day of probiotic, study after study after study. And, you know, God bless this, you know, grant donor um, who's you know, trying to do the right thing by funding research, um, but it's a probiotic. And he was not aware of how fast they degrade. And they've had to reject batch after batch after batch because his, val his, his probiotic, uh, the activity levels are so significantly below what he's wanting us to test. And we've, and so a lot of pro bono work for this guy. I mean, this goes well beyond grants. Uh, I, I never didn't charge him, uh, but if having to walk him through quality control, like you're, you need to go to this manufacturer, you need to use this, you need to do this uh, because to get it stable to the point we could finally test it and be able to, even if it degrades over time, I can now plot it on what's, what are they really taking? You know, what was the active amount and be able to report that because that's real. And so like me as a, I'm very much a supplement fan and I get very upset at seeing studies come out that don't report independent on that, you know, they used a ginseng and a ginseng. And then I hear this, I mean, how many times do you have to hear a researcher? Ginseng doesn't work. It like, doesn't work. Well, hey, you didn't even validate that you were testing ginseng. It could be a weed that you tested. You, know, you didn't do the independent testing to make sure from a DNA perspective, is it for the right genus? Did you, is it have the fingerprint profile that it should have? Did it have the potency that you're claiming in your paper that it, because that's your expectation. And so the research side also, I think has a serious lack of doing their job as well on what's expected. If we're going to if we're going to discuss what a supplement does or doesn't do under whatever conditions, methods, and subject, you know, um, you know, intervention that we're talking about, then I need to make sure that if you're using DEXA, are you using the right, you know, is your DEXA qualified? You've you've reported your ICC, you've done your BOD pod, you do whatever else you're doing. Well, let me see, is this product real? I mean, what was the, what was the potency? And if you do a 20 week study uh, on, on a, you know, across two semesters, you know, uh, of a probiotic, or are you testing that at frequent intervals so you can track what the potency is? Because the thing is going to not be what you think it is, especially if it's a powder, now, if it's a liquid form. They, uh, they tend to stay, the high potency stays better in a cold liquid form, but powder form. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck to that. And so, and then when you get into anything else, you know, uh, just understanding formulation on, you know, overages required for things that do their job. Vitamin C is a is an antioxidant. Vitamin E is an antioxidant. 
and they do their job. Polyphenols or antioxidants, you know, have antioxidant capacity. You can't call them antioxidants, but they have antioxidant capacity. Well, that means that they oxidize, right? To basically they're they're like they're like the you know suicide you know protectors of the of the rest of the bunch. And because of that, potency does this over time. And if you have a long-term study, or maybe you don't keep your treatments in controlled conditions, or maybe, you know, whatever happened, there's delays in doing your study, or you decide, I'm going to use this from last semester's study because we have extra, and I'm going to do another study using this. I mean, you have to sit there and test this over time because it is a food and it degrades just like, you know, drugs will test, you know, potency uh, over time, right? And so they tell you, you know, consume it within this, you know, it's no longer good after this period. And there's very, there's great uh, quality control and drugs in showing shelf stability. Dietary supplements have a horrible, horrible, horrible habit of stamping a two-year shelf life on everything. No testing, no, you know, ambient conditions versus accelerated conditions versus intermediate conditions, testing at the different stages like you're supposed to, and just blanket. But here as a consumer, I'll tell you this. If you get a brand, and so I saw you did a post, uh, I think last night or something, on truenutrition.com, right? On a protein. Yeah. So, uh, so I sent them a, a request for, yeah, I wanted them to send me their uh, last uh, five batches, uh, send, send me their C of A's for their multivitamin, which they list so much stuff. This is full transparency. This is actually a boon for consumers because if they're listing all these active ingredients and the doses, then they have to have proof that that product has those items. Now there's vitamins and minerals that have to be on the label, right? And you have to test for those. But everything else, I mean, it's like a pre-workout where somebody's showing that they have 30 different ingredients and they have, you know, three grams of creatine monohydrate and they got, you know, six grams of citrulline malate and they're, whatever else they're, you know, copying to the other guy who has the exact same thing, but with a purple label, not a green label. As soon as they put all that on there, they have to be able to show the, 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 the analytical evidence that their product contains that. Does that mean that they have to, at every time they produce it, they have to test for all 36? No, I mean, no scientist would do that. But your first several production runs, first three production runs, you should do tests for everything in there, right? To make sure it's called blend uniformity. If you, I mean, to have huge 100 kilo, you know, vats, and still be able to claim you're giving microgram amounts in every little amount of that ends up in a capsule. All it takes is you baking a cake with your kids one day and putting powder in a thing and adding and then pouring that powder out of one container to another to watch what we call tunneling and how powder flows, right? And so you know as well as I do, like, oh, I got to get some of this down there because it's caking it's falling not falling down correct so brands are expected to be able to show composition identity purity and potency 
Composition, meaning everything that they claim on their label is in there in those amounts. Okay, potency, that they're in those actual amounts and if they slap a shelf life all the way to expiration date, okay? Purity, lack of microbiologicals above a certain level, lack of uh, heavy metals above a certain acceptance level, uh, not containing other compounds deemed unhealthy, uh, not irradiating their finished product. I mean, so certain things that just from a safety standpoint, we don't do to foods. Um, and then identity is, is again, is that it's kind of, it's a catch-all. And that's unfortunately where most of these brands do is, is it what it says it is? And, and so every batch that gets released, every lot of a batch that gets released has to have that testing. So what I did is I looked at your notes, I send them a note, said, send me. So I looked at their website and I always go to the multis because people love to just fairy dust a ton of different stuff in there so they can have as many things on the label as possible. Um, and it, I, I've run brands that we did that too. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not being mean in the sense of like, hey, I've done it. I mean, not in purpose. I took over a brand and that's how they do it. I don't like to formulate stuff like that, but I get it consumers buy stuff because they think there's more in it they don't realize it's a lot of nothing and that doesn't mean that's you know that's ridiculous uh, that's homeopathic medicine at that point uh, if you believe in that garbage and so uh sent them a, a request to send me their c of a's their certificate of analysis on their last five batches uh of their release criteria and they'll also send me the evidence of their clinical evidence of their shelf stability of their expiration date that they post on their, on their products. Now I'm going to guarantee it'd be nice if I get it, uh, even if it's blacked out, it'd be interesting to see if I do. Uh, but looking at their website, looking at what they do, I, I'm not, I don't know these people uh, to save my life. So I have no vested interest. I just I throw it out there as a, as a comment that if you as a consumer want to know if company you're, you're working with is legit, if they tell you we don't send that out, that's proprietary. But yet they tell you they're third-party testing everything, they're full transparency, and well, then send it to me. And and when you and there's a, there's a brand out there uh, called I love it. They call themselves Transparency Labs. Have you seen them? I'm yeah. sure you've been. Okay, and so I've sent them the same, and have called them on the cover. So they use a brand, they use a, a lab that's been busted before for what we call dry labbing. It'd be the equivalent of me sending you a product to test and you just send me results that that I could use for marketing, but not actually running a study, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they, they've used, they've got a, uh, they've got some of their reports from a, a company that has changed their name, but they, they were on a, uh, I don't know, maybe you saw it was a 2020, I think it was who did it, or maybe it was 60 minutes did a thing a couple of years ago, uh, a company got busted for dry labbing, you know, when they, uh, their main office in Tucson, Arizona. But at any rate, again, that labs can change and improve and become better. But it's what they claim that they're testing. None of it, what they're showing you is a, a certification of analysis, absolutely, that did some testing. They looked for micros, they looked for heavy metals. You know, they did organoleptic. Organoleptic means does it look the right color? Does it smell? Does it taste right? Um, and they did what's called an IR test, uh, uh, so near IR, so um, uh, which is 
the equivalent of taking a light at it and it's a reflectant, you know, and and if you have enough ingredients in something, it's going to always pass. I mean, because, you know, they just look the same. And I can go down this entire discussion on why that is the worst identity test you can do. Um, and, but everybody does it. IR testing for raw materials where they, anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. I won't go down it because it'll be way off topic. But point is, is that once they put things on that label, they have to test it. The certification analysis you need to get needs to show all those tests that let's say like transparency labs, you know, puts on, but they just say pass, 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 pass. Like, okay, well, what test did you run? If you're a peer reviewer of a study and they tell you the results, but they don't tell you the methods they did and they don't show you that they actually had, like, what are those specifications? Like, what were the ranges that you tested for? Did you do the right type of test to identify this ingredient, right? So you have to say, did you use the USP 60 for this, you know, for this analyte that you're looking for? What was your, what was your range? What was your, you know, level agreement that, that you're looking for? And where did it fall within that? And I think what people, unfortunately, they see Transparency Labs post their, their, their CMA for every lot. I'm going to scan it and I'm going to send it. Look, they show it to me. But if you're so ignorant, you don't understand how to read a, a CMA, then that's just as worthless. I can just, again, it's a Tommy boy. I can, I can stamp it on a box that, you know, I could take a dump in a box and I can stamp it certified. doesn't mean it's anything that you want. Yeah. And and that's, and that's where consumers are, but that's also where the science is. I mean, and it's unfortunate is that, you know, uh, and, you know, Jeff Stout made this point when I brought this up, when I went back for mine, he said, well, we test what the consumer is going to buy. I'm like, that's fair. But that means also then that the, what you are, what you are actually going to have to talk about then in your results and discussion and what comes out of it isn't that ginseng doesn't work it's that brand a's ginseng claiming product doesn't work because we don't know if that's ginseng or not it's really kind of where it has to come to in the discussion if we're being fair right i mean because you have to be able to validate your equipment your methods in your lab you should be validating that your raw that your materials you're testing or what they claim you know you unless you're getting something from Sigma Aldrich, you know, and you're getting it from a qualified, you know, uh, supplier of standards. Well, I mean, you know, companies that are selling raw materials, I mean, and I work for them, I s support them, but we have a vested interest in that those test out well too. Right. And, and if, and I'm the consummate, you know, I have a, I, I give a lot of faith in people, but also, I've seen a lot of bad things happen, and so I'm just going to sit there and make sure that, hey, I'm going to verify that nobody has spiked it, or maybe, and I always say, maybe there's just a mistake in production, you know, and that happens all the time. Cross-contamination occurs all the time, all the time, and so wouldn't you want to be able to verify that what you're giving your subjects is safe and is what they're, you've written in an IRB it's supposed to be, so... Yeah, our, our IRB here actually mandates that third-party, you know, CFA as part of the IRB submission on the front end. So you have to get that done before you even plan to start the study. Oh, good, good. But, you know, I, I definitely made that 
you know, mistake earlier in some of my uh, projects that were not funded and were just kind of pulling, you know, product off the shelf as a, you know, a student thesis project or something like that. And, you know, we were, admittedly, it wasn't the best way to do it. And we would just kind of describe it like Jeff did, where it was, we said it was the commercially available version of it, you know, take that as it is. So, but I agree, I see that a lot in the literature of, no mention of it um no mention of how it was stored distributed you know a lot of those details oftentimes are left out and andrew i mean i think there's great value in that so and 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 i'm not uh and i'm not being critical of jeff by any means i love the guy and what i'm saying is that is that the conclusions we can draw from those studies have to match that we didn't verify the product that we tested Mm -hmm. and so so our conclusions are very narrow. They have to be specific to that specific product, not, and you see this so often is that a conclusion from a study that studied one product that maybe, you know, had, you know, maybe their biggest marketing they did. And I'm gonna, so I'll use this cause it's fresh in my mind, you know, that they, they claimed blood flow and because of the beet root powder, but they have tons of other ingredients that they claim is in it too, but they claim they're, they stake their, you know, most of their marketing on the beetroot powder. And so you see, you know, papers come out, the beetroot powder did this or didn't do that, you know, and go, well, and then this, you know, finished product study that happened to market beetroot powder and happened to contain Beat, you know, or claim to contain beetroot powder, never actually was tested to, cl- to contain any beetroot powder. So are we, is it fair to, to group? So when I see people do meta analyses on all the studies in beta alanine or creatine and, and you go, man, a lot of those could be, need to be thrown out because nobody ver- verified the active component. And if there's any combination of ingredients present in it or if it's a whey protein i mean now we get into an area that people don't know a lot of people don't know what they're talking about on isolates concentrates and definitely in hydrolysis and are we comparing apples to apples you know on as is versus dry weight and percentage i mean and i'm doing a, a thing right now on on um on alpha lactalbumin and i see researchers that will use like a wpi that claims to be you know high in alpha lactalbumin well but then they aren't that that researcher amazing researcher (laughs) wonderful you know protein genius who doesn't understand ingredients and you know you talk and, and it's applied is that the gram amounts that are being given is that, and you're referring to it as alpha lactalbumin, you know, 20 grams or 40 grams a day. And you're not actually giving 20 or 40 grams a day of alpha lactalbumin. You're giving 20 or 40 grams of whey protein isolate. And, but the amount of actual alpha lactalbumin that's present at best at dry weight is 90%, but consumers don't consume dry weight. We consume it with moisture in the powder. And so it might be 80%. And so the numbers that now everybody talks about and how much you need of this are based on the study that is erroneous because the researcher doesn't know ingredient specifications and didn't send out for testing. And 
And I see that so often and it's unfortunate um, because in the end, the consumer loses, right? I mean, they're the ones that are duped and we're told this doesn't work or that doesn't work. And researchers, you know, um, I think, you know, because of this kind of breakdown in the communication to the very thing that they're testing, and there's a trust there. I think we want to believe the people that are funding a grant, you know, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing because, hey, they're funding a grant, then that's something that a lot of companies aren't doing. So hopefully they're doing the other stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've made a, a little bit of, you know, my work is hopefully, uh, you know, I've helped raise over $3.3 million in studies and over, you know, in the last little bit over a decade now. And, you know, and, and not, I haven't made any money. I mean, I think I've, I've been paid on two of the studies that I've raised. I mean, so it's not, I'm not doing it for, uh, yeah, probably more than that probably made money for more than that, but, um, but I'm not sitting there making a ton of money off it, but I think it's an area that because it is something I, I love to, to do and, and I want the communication out there to the consumer to be accurate. You know, I think that it's a, it's an area that bridging that gap between goes back to why I enjoy publishing and writing is that if you can bridge that gap from the, what the consumer needs to know and what the scientists in the labs are skilled and able to collect and make it where all sides win and all sides understand the needs of the other and the limitations of those, then I think that we all win. It all gets to be a better product. I mean, to realize the see criticism in the publishing world of people that are you know, anti-supplement of this study was only 12 weeks. This study was only 10 weeks. This study was only 12 weeks. Like, well, you realize that most of these studies are done in college students and that's like that's the reality of recruiting by semester. Otherwise, you know, you have a summer, you know, or you have a spring break or you have a Christmas break. And, and so, yeah, I mean, getting people to have a better perspective on all of the limitations that go in is I think really important, but I'm getting off, I'm like way off topic on you. So I apologize. No, that's all right. It's fascinating to listen to. Um, I guess one of the other questions that that popped in my mind when you were talking about, you know, CFAs and, and getting that product verified and stuff was the role that third party, you know, companies that, you know, have these verification practices in place. How good are they at what they do? Are there issues and limitations? Uh, you know, how frequently are they doing some of that independent analysis before they put their their label of kind of guarantee on some of these products? Because you know, I, I do this a lot too. I'll refer people to those types of products, but in my mind, I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing the right thing. And, and just, I'd love to get your feedback on again, which ones are, are better or worse at it or how good are all of them at uh, kind of what they're claiming to do. Are you meaning like a, like a NSF for sport or, yep. or a uh, informed choice, informed sport, that kind of stuff. Band, yes. uh, BACG. Yep. So, I mean, those are a little bit different. I mean, there's there's a lot of third-party analytical labs that you can use uh, to verify uh, identity, composition, purity, and potency and on an ingredient or product. Um, and that's not, doesn't have to be a WADA band substance tested product. I mean, so, um, and there's lots of great ones. There's a lot of horrible ones. Um, 
and a lot of the contract manufacturers set up their own quality labs in their own facility and don't validate, you know, and they just, it's a way to, you know, speed up. They're more operationally driven to get product out the door faster and to capture more of that margin. Um, so a lot of those C of A's that people get on a product, they're literally being produced by, you know, a company that may or may not know what they're doing. There's some wonderful companies out there that do third-party analytical testing amazingly well. Now, to answer your question, though, on banned substance tested, the certain, the whether it's certified, you know, banned substance tested, that quality testing, are there ones that are better than others? I mean, there's not a lot of them, you know, for one, right? I mean, really, you come down to three. You got Banned Substance Control Group, BSCG, uh, that started by Don Catlin, you know, who was really, really the, the first person to put a face and name to why you needed to do it. You know, so he was the original head of banned substance testing for the IOC, you know, back when, uh, during like the Mark McGuire and era when, you know, all this stuff kind of came to light and Andro testing. But, you know, and so his facility was there out of UCLA and they still have, they're in that UCLA, you know, corporate center there um, out, in, out in the LA area. I think BSCG does a wonderful job and they'll test all the way through, um, through your supply chain and, you know, really help identify the, the source of a, of a problem. I also like how BSCG um, is very realistic on explaining to you what they can and cannot, what their tests can and cannot tell you as a customer or as a, as a brand, right? I mean, so as a consumer, I think most people as consumers say, you know, we've watched too much CSI and we think we put the powder in the Willy Wonka machine, we hit the button, the Oompa Loompas come out, couple minutes later and we tell you that a guy named you know Joe Dirt uh, was who forested it off the ground you know in Indonesia and and it's just not that accurate right I mean it's it's not we don't it's not that precise and it's not that consistent it's also there's just a lot that testing can't tell you and um, there's a reason why NSF informs uh, sport BSCG unless they've changed recently they don't indemnify uh, products that they've tested that it doesn't contain something because there's just remember if somebody gets hit with a uh, somebody gets hit with a, uh, a a drug violation right they piss in a in a cup is the way the sports though collect that that um, that analyte and if that analyte, you know, shows up in a, in a, in a product or, you know, or I should say not the analyte, if the, if the parent compound shows up in a, in a product and they say, well, uh, this product is, is tainted, um, is that BSCG is one of the best that is explained to me is that we just don't have enough data on the dosing of consuming banned substances across enough populations and enough environments and then the presence and concentration of the analytes to to make that immediate correlation back to what 
what should we be testing for and at what amounts, right? And so most people just assume is that if it tests out wrong, you know, if it tests out to have presence, then it must be, must be bad. But to answer your question directly, I think BSCG does a wonderful job. I think Informed Sport does a wonderful job. Informed Sport started, you know, in the horse racing world. And so, uh, so that's why they're out of Kentucky um, and, you know, where that was big money. So they, they definitely have a little bit more of a reach. I think, I, I think Informed Sport also is much better at getting the word out there. Uh, they've got more sports franchises that support an, a, a product that is Informed Sport certified. And so I always joke with, uh, with Oliver Catlin, who, you know, runs BSCG is, you know, I am a huge fan of BSCG. I think you guys do probably the best job, if I'm being fair, even though Andy Holmes, you know, is going to be mad if he watches this at Informed Sport, because I've worked with those guys since they started too, and really like those guys. I think that they do a wonderful job. I just think BSCG the pedigree they come from with Catlin, kind of the level of knowledge, what they do test for and how the depth that they go and the cost, they're also cheaper than informed sport, but they suck at the marketing. And so a lot of the, the sports don't recognize them like they do NSF for informed sport. On the far end of that, you have NSF for sport, which I think is a joke. Uh, I mean, I will just, I, I um, I have seen too many cases of NSF on the quality control side come in and give people NSF certifications. And I, and I know for a fact, because I was there and I had the data and they found none of the problems that were existing because they literally are still looking at it like it's a pay to play type model. Are they improving? Yes, I think they're improving. Uh, but I think that there are definitely people who give NSF for sport far, far, far too much uh, credit than they deserve. Uh, they are the equivalent of an Amazon, right? Is that you can get everything there, but a lot of what you're going to get there is going to be garbage, right? I mean, it's just, and NSF, I think, is in that realm. And a lot of ways they are in so much stuff. This is just one of several things that they do as a company. And they, you know, jack of jack of all trades, master of none, is where I would put them. They cost the most, and it gives you definitely. And so when I consult with clients, it's like, well, what are you wanting to get out of having a sports certification? Well, I need to be able to, you know, I, I've got some, you know, uh, major league baseball athletes, you know, that. Yeah, they won't work with us. And I'm like, well, then you have to do NSF. You know, I mean, like they're the ones that have the, you know, the the agreements with Major League Baseball. And unless you have NSF, so you're gonna have to pay for that. You know, and is it you just wanna if you're a brand and you just want like the best one out there, and you know, you're okay that you don't you're not gonna be able to sit there and get into certain sports easily. Um, and it's not going to be an automatic ticket into certain sports. I think BSCG is wonderful. If you want a midline one that can get into a lot of the sports, has a lot of the reputation on NCAA campuses, you go inform sport. I mean, they do a wonderful job. I think that they're good people. I think that they definitely are more focused. 
understand the limitations, they'll communicate it to you. And so I really like them. I use them on a lot of different projects. Um, and so I would say your best two that you do for BSCG and Informed Sport. Um, you know, beyond that, I think NSF is just the Tommy Boy stamp, you know, so. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's, again, just the, the disconnect there between what you see should be done and what in a perfect world it would be set up to do. But in reality, you know, some of those fail safes just aren't executed like they should be. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, consumer loses every time, right? So your expectations get up there that I'm not going to get dinged, you know, for something and you do. And it's an NSF, you know, product built in an NSF facility. I mean, it's, you can look and that's the, you know, I see that all the time. Contract manufacturers want to have a GMP certification, you know, go get an NSF one, pay to play. It doesn't mean anything to me. It just means you've been, you got a certified piece of garbage, you know, and until you show me otherwise. Um, now I'm sure that there's, the only reason I feel confident I can say this without being sued for, you know, uh, speaking uh, ill with somebody is I get the data to show you. I mean, and I've sent the letters to NSF and my complaints on times that this has happened you know, and it's happened repeatedly. And so in places that I've been and, and I think that, you know, it's something that they need to address better. They have some really good auditors and they've got a lot of bad auditors. It's like a personal trainer type environment. I think with NSF is that, you know, is that they have to do what they do with as many people. They have a lot of auditors that are just kind of, you know, depends on who you get. You might get a great one who's very thorough and does a wonderful job. And you might get somebody who's just clocking in that day to get a paycheck. You know, he happens to have a micro bio, you know, degree and doesn't know what to look for either. So. Yeah, well, I wish I could keep going and picking your brain here for the next couple hours, but I got another meeting coming around the corner. Um, yeah, no worries. I, I feel like the best way to kind of wrap this up is even segue into that checklist that you developed and passed along. And I'll, I'll definitely figure out a way to get that posted uh, when we put this episode out. But, you know, if you were to kind of summarize all that and provide your your best kind of take home recommendations for people when choosing supplements in terms of picking the, the best one or what to look for, or red flags that you kind of mentioned earlier in the talk, what, what would be your kind of top 10 list or things that you would just tell the people when you're walking into the supplement section, here's some big do's and don'ts. Yeah, I mean, so first thing is look for uh, drug claims. So if, they're, if they are at all claiming to cure, prevent, or you, they throw out disease words, they say the words diabetes, heart disease, cancer, inflammation, you know, if they were use those words that are no-nos, that are, you know, the FDA has made clear, that should be rule number one. And so if you talk about, you know, liver cirrhosis or whatever, I mean, you gotta remember, they can only, a dietary supplement is structure function. We can help support the structure or function of the body, but we cannot sit there and prevent, cure, treat, mitigate disease, okay? So none of those things can play out. So that's first. If you see those type, that type of marketing, I would say big red flag. Uh, if you look on, uh, if you go and uh, reach out to the company, you call them and ask for, you know, uh, if they're doing full transparency as, as they claim and you ask for 
their C of A's, you know, for the last, you know, three to five batches of whatever product you're interested in. And don't be surprised if they black out what they tell you, if they send it to you, you know, if they black out certain things, I think that's great. And even if they'll send it to you, it's wonderful. I'd ask them for a list of their adverse events, uh, like, you know, what are some of their adverse events and uh, for this product? And so companies, the FDA tends to hit companies up on that, that most companies don't keep uh, AERs. And you as a consumer, and I, we don't have time to jump into what qualifies an AER versus an SAER, but, you know, ask for the adverse events, like what, what are some of your adverse events that you've had over this past year? Uh, they all, we haven't gotten any, then I wouldn't buy from them because every product under the FDA's definition of what an AER is for a dietary supplement, there's not a single company that sells products that hasn't had an AER. I may not have had an SAER, but every one of these companies should have a list of AERs. And so, um, and they shouldn't have a problem sending it to you just because they should be running their analytics every year on it. So, I mean, those are without getting too in depth. I mean, I also like to tell people, make sure they're investing in trade associations, both on the research side, you know, research side and, and on the trade side of the industry. So are they investing back into growing the industry or are they just a taker? Are they just sitting there taking advantage of, 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 of the money opportunity? Are they investing in research? I mean, do they legitimately fund any research? Are they funding any labs? Are they funding anybody's, you know, PhD work? I mean, whatever, just if you're not investing in research and you're not investing in the industry, then what are you doing? Like, what are you doing that's actually helping move the industry forward and supporting that your product is safe? Um, and then, you know, are there people at the company that's qualified to do what they do? Do they have any PhDs? Do they have anybody that are, you know, that are in the biological side to do quality control. Do who is their quality director, and what's their qualification? I mean, so the FDA is very clear that there are certain roles that your director of quality has to be somebody who is qualified to understand these regs and has had the training. Like, who is that person? Who's your quality director? You know, like, and so, you know, those types of things. I think you should look for. You know, who's actually formulating the product? Um, because there's a lot of people that, you know, Johnny, you know, he's been a bodybuilder for, you know, years and, you know, and he's decided to make his own. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's not that Johnny can't learn it, you know, but, man, I've been doing this for a long time and I had to do the, you know, learn as I go and in some amazing places with some great people and it ain't, it ain't easy. So that, I mean, that's, I, mean, I think, a fair number of things people could, could look at. Uh, that list, you're welcome to post it. I can sit there and send it to you again if you need it. Um, anybody have questions, you can, you know, pop onto my social media pages. I'm happy to answer uh, questions that people might have. I'm not going to review every product that somebody's taken. So, you know, don't expect that. But, you know, some of the major, you know, points um, that somebody might have, I'm happy to sit there and, and give them a, a suggestion on what to look for. So Do you have a list anywhere of like top you know, brands for each, you know, like a protein type supplement, a pre-workout, a multivitamin. Do you have lists like that anywhere that? I don't do those just because I could easily be targeted for yeah. you know, my own conflicts of interest. And That's so, nice. and so I can kind of point out like, Hey, I don't, I don't take this brand or that. There's definitely, there are definitely brands and on a personal level on a, you know, I'd happy to do it confidentially on, Hey, here's who I like. Here's who, 
Here's who I don't, you know, but, but I mean, you know, I'm just being realistic. So I don't come across as a hypocrite. I've worked for so many different places that my perspective is a little bit different than, than most. And, and so yeah. if I tell you, I like some, somebody go, well, yeah, you made money for them or you consulted. Fair enough. I know what's under the hood too. So yeah. anyway, but yeah. Well, hey, it's been wonderful, Andrew. I appreciate it. And I just realized, man, I've been talking with you for two hours. So I apologize for chatterboxing. So oh, like I said, I, I could do this all afternoon. And I might even have to follow up again and do another one because now I'm going to walk away with more questions than I had <laughs> to, going into it. So like I said, I knew you'd be a, a gold mine of knowledge when it comes to a lot of this. And this is information that I just never really had access to. You know, I haven't had any experience with the other side of of the industry across, you know, all of it, nutrition, supplement, R and D in the business side of it too. So it's just interesting to, to hear your stories and perspective about it. And I would just definitely recommend everyone follow your work because I, I feel like your message is needed very loud and clear for the consumers, for scientists, for supplement companies, you know, as we've, as we've highlighted here, there's definitely a disconnect and some misconceptions and, you know, not that anyone's intentionally going out there to harm people, but unfortunately the reality of the situation is things don't always work like they should. Absolutely. So absolutely. It's important to educate yourself and do a little bit of homework and make sure you're picking products that aren't going to be harmful to you, your athletes or whoever you're working with, I guess. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I appreciate the time and thanks for all the work you do. And so, you know, keep it up. It's always a pleasure to read the work you're doing and your students are very fortunate to have you as a, as a great resource and teacher. So thanks for everything. And thanks for the time today, man. And if you have questions, by all means, reach out again. Sounds good. I'll do that. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.